0: Welcome! You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the March 8th, 2023, that's Wednesday, reading of the Boulder Daily Camera and the Longmont Times Call. My name is Kevin Martindale. Today we'll be reading the following main articles. Out of Boulder, a car crash update by Mitchell Byers. Uh, Out of Longmont, we've got uh, Shriner is guilty of first-degree murder, and that's also by Mitchell Byers. And we've got uh, an article on Boulder County 4-H. And uh, update from the Longmont City Council by Matt Bennett. And from the business section, uh, liquor stores may need to adapt now that wine can be sold in uh, grocery stores. Okay, and we'll follow that up with miscellaneous articles. It seems like we don't have so much news today, so we're probably will get to uh, letters to the editor and uh, maybe some other miscellaneous articles around the region, okay. Let's get started. Front page of the Daily Camera. It's Boulder Crash. Erie Driver. Witnesses say Erie Driver was racing and driving at 100 miles per hour. This is by Mitchell Byers. One of the drivers in a crash on Arapahoe Avenue last month is facing a felony charge. As witnesses said, he was racing, and investigators determined he was driving upward of 100 miles per hour at the time of the crash. Dion Jordan, 51, of Erie, was arrested Tuesday on suspicion of vehicular assault in connection with the crash on February 18th. Police said a 31-year-old man driving a Subaru Crosstrek west on Arapahoe Avenue tried to turn left onto Conasoga Street when he was hit by Jordan's Tesla Model 3 heading east on Arapahoe. After being hit by the Tesla, the Subaru then also hit a power pole on the southeast corner of the intersection. The driver of the Subaru had to be extricated by Boulder Fire Rescue personnel and was transported to the hospital with serious injuries. According to an affidavit released Tuesday, multiple witnesses said Jordan was seen driving at extremely high speeds and racing with another car prior to the crash. The other vehicle did not stop following the crash and that driver has not been identified. The driver of the Subaru said he had a flashing yellow light to make the turn, but saw that Jordan's vehicle was at Arapahoe Avenue and Eisenhower Drive and thought there was time to make the left turn. Police said that intersection is about 1,150 feet away from the site of the crash. Another witness to the crash said said Jordan was in the process of moving into the right lane to try to get around the other racing vehicle when the crash occurred. The driver who was struck taking that left turn had no choice, the witness told police according to the affidavit. An examination of Jordan's vehicle showed that it had the accelerator in its maximum position and was traveling at 101 miles per hour just prior to the crash, which is more than 50 miles per hour over the posted speed limit of 45 miles per hour in that area. From the business section, we have CSU economists, liquor stores may have to adapt. This is by Lucas High. Last week, Colorado grocery and convenience stores began selling wine, opening up a large new channel of competition for the state's liquor stores. While this new competition is likely to take a bite out of liquor stores' customer bases, a shift in strategy in favor of a greater focus on spirits, craft beer, and wine, and local and specialty offerings could keep retailers in the game. A new study from economics professors at the Colorado State University posits. The study from Nathan Pilardi and Marco Constanigro found that Since 2019, when Colorado grocers began selling beer, visitations at liquor stores have decreased by about 5%. It's not that much, they can absorb it, Con Costa said of liquor store operators. However, that decrease in visitation could double to around 10% with the introduction of wine in grocery stores, according to the CSU study, which used Oklahoma, a state that allowed both beer and wine sales by grocers in 2018 as a model for comparison. The policy changes in states such as Colorado and Oklahoma are part of a national trend towards liberalizing alcohol distribution and allowing sales in new market channels, the study said. Trade associations on behalf of liquor stores claim that alcohol liberalization will result in the mass transfer of alcohol sales to grocery and convenience stores to the detriment of many small businesses. Policymakers are also concerned that a mass transfer will lead to consolidation in the retail tier of alcohol markets, ultimately reducing competition and harming consumers. If Colorado liquor stores have a similar experience to their peers in Oklahoma, those concerns about competition contraction may prove valid. Once you're talking about a 10% decrease in visits, some stores are going to start to hurt, Costa Negro said. Regardless of the scope of the visitation decline ultimately experienced by non-grocery sellers, the introduction of new, often corporate-backed competition won't be good for liquor stores. We can say that for sure, Bruce Dierking General manager of Hazel's Beverage World in Boulder told Biz West. Only a few days after the law granting grocery stores the ability to sell wine, there's not enough data to draw any inferences or anything, he said. It's a little bit more of a guessing game of what the impacts might be, especially because a lot of grocery change haven't fully rolled out their wine aisles and displays and products. A lot of them have a few case stacks here and there, but it's still pretty haphazard. Dierking said his best guess for smaller liquor stores that are directly adjacent to grocery stores is that if those grocery stores really lean into wine, They'll put people out of business within a couple of years. A pivot in strategy could provide some hope for liquor stores because grocery stores don't carry the same variety of beer and wine as liquor sellers, nor do they sell spirits such as whiskey and vodka. Whether or not you were able to enter into the grocery store, Channel largely depended on your size and your scope of operations, Costa Negro said. So while grocery stores certainly carry some craft brews, their shoppers are much more likely to be looking to grab a sixer of Coors Light than a growler of their favorite hometown and nano brewery's latest seasonal offering. Chain grocery stores don't really do craft, and they don't really do local, Dierking said, and if they do, it's really just a minor nod to it rather than leaning into it. Additionally, spirits become a lot more important for liquor stores, he said. Spirits have been growing in popularity, as have ready-to-drink cocktails. I think there'll be a lot of stores that really lean into that and try to build their businesses around that. The CSU study found that liquor stores often carry a wide assortment of all alcohol types and provide knowledgeable staff that can help consumers make a selection. Consumers, therefore, may or may not change market channels depending on preferences and the purpose of the shopping trip. Only time will tell whether liberalization of beer and wine sales will result in the crowding out of local liquor sellers, according to the CSU Economists. It is conceivable that some liquor stores could start closing, Costa Negro said, but at the same time, some liquor stores could start specializing more in craft products as a strategy. For now, the researchers can conclude that partial alcohol liberalization has a substantial but not catastrophic effect on liquor stores. That isn't necessarily the opinion of many liquor sellers. People are expecting it to take a huge chunk of their business, Durking said. Some are doing proactive layoffs and trying to figure out how to cut expenses, dial back, and downsize in order to hopefully still be viable with a lot less revenue. Our next article is on the fatal shooting trial. It says, Devin Schreiner is found guilty. This is by Mitchell Byers. The woman accused of shooting her ex-boyfriend and the father of her child was found guilty of first-degree murder on Tuesday. Devin Schreiner, 27, was found guilty by a Boulder County jury of first-degree murder after deliberation in the death of Jason Schaefer, age 33. The jury heard about five days' worth of testimony before receiving the case Monday afternoon and deliberating for about eight hours before returning a verdict just after 3 p.m. on Tuesday. Because the charge carries a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole, Boulder District Judge Patrick Butler proceeded immediately to sentencing and ordered Schreiner to spend the rest of her life in the Colorado Department of Corrections. Deputy District Attorneys Carlos Ruda and Allison Brand read off several impact statements from members of Schaefer's family, including his mother, Lori. Quote, this has been a living nightmare, she wrote. I miss my son so much. Schreiner did not address the court. Schreiner's defense attorney, Jennifer, Jennifer Engelman, also declined to comment, quote, in this court, end quote, possible indicator that Schreiner will appeal the verdict. Engelman had moved for a mistrial Monday, accusing Butler of bias toward the prosecution and costing Schreiner a fair trial in his evidentiary rulings. Schreiner and her then-boyfriend and co-defendant, Andrew Ritchie, were accused of plotting to kill Schaefer, while he was delivering mail in Southwest Longmont on october thirteenth of twenty twenty one. District Attorney Michael Doherty stated, This defendant is a cold-blooded murderer. She took steps to get away with this brutal murder, but she underestimated two things. First, the victim was very much loved by his family and co-workers information and support they provided was critical. Also, the U.S. Postal Inspectors and Longmont Detectives brought their best efforts and, along with our prosecution team, ensured justice was done. As always, we appreciate the time and service of the jurors. According to an affidavit, Schaefer was shot three times next to his postal delivery van near a cluster of mailboxes on Heather Hill Street, just west of Renaissance Drive. Just two days before the shooting, Schaefer had filed a request to modify parenting time, and witnesses also said Schreiner appeared upset that Schaefer had recently started dating Schreiner's 19-year-old sister. Shriners' attorneys have not contested the fact that Schreiner was the shooter, but lobbied for second-degree murder or manslaughter, saying Schreiner was manipulated and forced into the shooting by the actions of Ritchie and Schaefer. Ritchie has his own trial set for April and is also facing a charge of first-degree murder. Longmont City Council weighs Climate Action Goals and Legislative Bills, and this is by Matthew Bennett. The City of Longmont received an A grade from the Carbon Disclosure Project for its efforts to address climate change at the local level in 2022. A not-for-profit organization, the CDP, runs a global disclosure system for cities, states, and companies to help manage their environmental impacts, according to its website. The Longmont City Council reviewed the city's 2022 Sustainability and Climate Action Report during its regular session Tuesday and was mostly satisfied with the results. Longmont, which plans to utilize 100% renewable energy by 2030, is on track to meet that goal, according to the report. The city is also on pace to reduce transportation emissions 40% by 2030 and nearly 100% by 2050, the report said. I kind of come from the point of view, if you don't run the race, you can't win the race, Councilman Sean McCoy said during Tuesday's meeting. In this case here, I think we have to probably keep moving in the right direction, end quote. While there were mostly encouraging data points in the report presented Tuesday, there was also plenty of room for improvement. Currently, just 1.6% of registered vehicles in Longmont are electric, despite the city wanting to increase the number of zero emission vehicles to 30% by 2030. Councilwoman Marsha Martin, who is the council liaison to the city's Sustainability Advisory Board, advocated for additional data modeling and more ambitious goals, given that the city has already declared a climate emergency. I would sure like to understand why the rest of the council does not want to raise the bar anymore, because I bet the staff wants to, Martin said. Legislative bills. In addition to reviewing the Sustainability and Climate Action Report, the city council weighed in on three bills, making their way through the state legislature. If signed into law, Senate Bill 23-111 would allow certain public employees, such as city workers, to fully participate in the political process of while off-duty and not in uniform, according to a council member. City employees already benefit from several protections included in the bill and staff in its recommendation to the council did not want the state dictating personnel practices at the municipal level and subsequently labeled SB 23-111, and overreach. Citing the need for more local control, the Council also opposed Senate Bill 23-166, which would establish a Wildfire Resiliency Code Board to adopt statewide fire codes and standards. Staff called the bill well-intentioned but preferred local officials making decisions related to fire codes and enforcement. The council did support Senate Bill 23-175 that would permit downtown development authorities to extend their tax increment financing arrangements 20 years at a time specifically for property tax revenue. Okay, I guess that's it. From the local briefs, we have Rocky Mountain Elementary receives New Math Bright Spot Award. Longmont's Rocky Mountain Elementary was among the 12 schools chosen for the new Governor's Math Bright Spot Award recognizing exceptional growth in math achievement since 2019. Schools selected for the award will receive $50,000 of federal governor's emergency education relief funds to go toward education investments, such as tutoring and other enrichment programs, student resources, and faculty development. Rocky Mountain Elementary also was one of 21 schools to receive the new Governor's Bright Spot Award in November. To qualify for the awards, schools must have advanced more than two levels on the state's performance framework since 2019. Rocky Mountain was the only school in the state to receive both awards. The next uh, article is not really an article, but it's a photo, and it's from the St. Vrain Valley School District, and it shows a room of seniors, and it's just entitled, Students Teach Seniors About Cybersecurity. So there you go. Good job by the students. Out of Lafayette. We've got the City Council supports banning the retail sale of dogs and cats. This is by Andrea Grajeda. Lafayette City Council expressed support Tuesday evening for banning the sale of all dogs and cats in the city, whether through retail pet stores or through hobby breeders. In late 2022, City Council directed staff to draft an ordinance prohibiting the sale, the retail sale of cats and dogs in pet stores due to the unfortunate nature that most of those pets come from puppy or kitten mills. City Attorney Mary Lynn Maxalka presented the proposed ordinance to City Council McSulka said that under Colorado law, municipalities have the authority to regulate, quote, offensive or unwholesome businesses, end quote, and prohibit cru- cruelty to animals and prohibit the sale of dogs or cats. McSulka said the mills often have inhumane breeding practices and little regard for the animals' safety and health. She presented two alternatives for the ordinance, one to ban the sale of cats and dogs just in pet stores, and another to ban all sales of cats and dogs. Both alternatives has exceptions for sales or adoptions of cats and dogs through animal shelters, animal rescues, or other animal care facilities. She said that the ordinance would have an exception for fostering animals placed by an animal rescue in a private home so long as the household is following the Lafayette Code that there can be up to three dogs, three cats, and one other household pet in the unit. Salka said that a ban on the retail sale of dogs and cats by pet stores would be easy to enforce, but enforcement of all sales would be more difficult to enforce and based on a compli- complaint basis. Only if the city received complaints with our law enforcement officers or Animal control officers be able to go and see if there is a violation of code, McSulka said. Obvi breeders, which are small scale breeders and are not producing more than 24 dogs or cats per year or more, oh, or more than two puppy litters or three kitty litters per year, do not have to be licensed in Colorado. McSalka said that the city would not know if hobby breeders would be violating the code unless the city received a complaint or notice. Council member Tanya Briggs said that puppy or kitten mills that are in the city are in violation of the code. There are ways to rescue animals that are currently here on this planet and give them a great home. We do not need to continue breeding, Briggs said. Briggs said that animal rescues ensure that animals end up in safe homes through background checks of the person wishing to adopt. She said that there is no guarantee that a puppy or kitty ends up in a safe environment through retail sale or breeders. Council member Nicole Sampson clarified that the ordinance only applies to cats and dogs and not other household pets such as turtles or birds. Council directed MeXalka to move forward with the ordinance to ban all sales of cats and dogs. The ordinance will be presented for consideration of first reading at a future council meeting. Volunteers anchor Boulder County 4-H program. This is by Faith Kroeschel. From the CSU Extension, Behind every great 4-H program, there are dozens of adult volunteer leaders. These individuals may be professionals, teachers in schools, parents, or volunteers in the community. Regardless of the type of 4-H leader, each is critical to the 4-H experience. 4-H leaders support youth as they learn by doing, by providing guidance and opportunities for meaningful leadership roles in their 4-H club and community. Each volunteer leader can develop a caring relationship with members They work to create a safe environment for 4-H members. Leaders provide opportunities for youth to build skills in something that sparks their interest. They create opportunities for youth to value and practice service to others, and they allow youth to make decisions and lead. Our leaders create an inclusive environment in which every child is welcome and encouraged to participate. Leaders are also given opportunities for personal development and training. People volunteer with 4-H for many reasons. One obvious benefit is to help guide and mentor our country's future citizens and leaders. Volunteers also develop new leadership skills, meet new friends, and have great adventures. Adult volunteers play an important role in 4-H youth education programs. They coordinate local community clubs and help to plan and conduct local, regional, state, and national 4-H events. What if I want to become a leader? What do I need to do? To become a 4-H leader, you need to have a sincere interest in the safety and well-being of youth have a desire to facilitate and motivate youth while nurturing self-esteem, decision-making skills, responsibility, and leadership. Leaders also need to have an interest in working in partnership with other volunteers and professional staff in an educational setting. It would also be helpful to have a willingness to adopt the philosophy policies, and procedures of the local 4-H organization and successfully go through the volunteer training process and background check. Depending on the role an individual takes on, a leader may need the ability to organize information and materials, delegate responsibility, ability to work, and communicate effectively, both verbally and written. Leaders often need a desire to motivate parents and other volunteers as well. Volunteers often only lead project activities. While that may sound daunting, you don't have to be an expert in a project topic to be a leader. Project resources, learning along with your members and involving others make it easy to volunteer. There is no limit to the variety of 4-H projects or activities that can be done. There are several ways that you can volunteer in 4-H. Positions that may exist are club volunteer, club organizational leader, chaperoning, project leader, or superintendent. In each position, however, leaders help 4-Hers develop leadership leadership and life skills Make new friends, give back to the community, build connections with others, and learn by doing. Check with the Boulder County Extension Office by email at 4hinfo at bouldercounty.org for position descriptions and opportunities to help you decide where your skills, interests, and time availability might make a good match. Uh, Additionally, it says Faith Kroeschel is the 4-H Youth Development and Outreach Agent for Colorado State University Extension in Boulder County in Longmont. An energy company sues to overturn sanctions, and this is by Judith Kohler. A Denver oil and gas company hit with a $1.9 million penalty facing the possible loss of its right to operate in Colorado is suing state regulators. Family-owned K.P. Kaufman Company Inc. filed a lawsuit Friday in Denver District Court to appeal a decision by the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission that found the company out of compliance with a plan to clean up spills and fix other alleged violations. After inspections, the COGCC staff also found that KP Kaufman or KPK was selling its oil and gas despite having its right to do so revoked in a February 1st decision. The decision suspended KPK's certificates, allowing it to sell its, its oil and gas, must be a wording problem there, and gave the company until August 1st to comply with state rules and orders or have its license to operate in Colorado yanked. One week after the order was issued, inspections by COGCC staffers found recorded gas sales at about 20 of KPK's sites and one location where oil was being transported for sale, said Caitlin Stafford, an assistant attorney general. A $1.9 million fine that had been suspended was imposed again. The company appealed the decision in state district court last week after the COGCC denied a motion to reconsider its order. In a statement, KPK called the Commission's decision deeply flawed and disputed that it was out of compliance with the cleanup plan approved in 2021. The COGCC's order deprives KPK of its operating revenue, while at the same time it demands the company complete scores of ongoing remediation projects by midsummer, and pay nearly $2 million in penalties by mid-March, the company said. The company is asking the court to send the matter back to the COGCC and is seeking damages for what it calls breach of contract. The COGCC declined to comment on the lawsuit saying it doesn't discuss pending litigation. The cleanup plan addressed a number of alleged violations by KPK, including spills at well sites and leaking flow lines, small lines that carry oil and gas from wells to equipment. The COGCC declared KPK out of compliance in February, After the commission, staff said only three of 58 projects had been completed and that the company's practices threaten public health and safety and the environment. The case involves widespread, systemic violations that the operator, quote, refuses to correct in a timely or successful manner, end quote. The written order to KPK said, In a February 27th hearing, John Jokas, an attorney representing KPK, asked the COGCC to reconsider the order and to delay the sanctions for six months. The agreement between the COGCC and KPK said the certificates needed to sell oil and gas in the state could be revoked And the agreement ended if the company didn't substantially comply. Jacques said the company was in substantial compliance and that preventing KPK from selling its oil and gas deprives it of the money it needs to do the work the state has ordered it to do. The uncertainty created by the GOCC order is also hindering the potential sale of some of KPK's wells, Jock has said. KPK has roughly 1,200 wells in the Denver-Julesburg Basin of northeastern Colorado. The majority of the wells are low producing. Perhaps most importantly, the order increases the risk of harm to public health safety, welfare, the environment, and wildlife resources by effectively requiring the immediate shut-in of all of its facilities, Jocka said. KPK doesn't have the capacity or infrastructure to store its oil and gas production on site, Jokas said. Without the flow of revenue from oil and gas production, Company won't be able to perform necessary maintenance and monitoring, he added. I don't appreciate that KPK is here today threatening the state of Colorado by threatening noncompliance, Commission Member John Messner said. KPK has a path to compliance, KPK alone is responsible for that compliance and they need to implement the steps necessary to come into compliance. Messner and the other four commission members voted against reconsidering the order and delaying the sanctions. Commission member Brett Ackerman called KPK's continuing to sell its oil and gas a blatant disregard of the COGCC order. Let's check out the letters to the editor. We have one here from a Glenn Murray of Boulder and it says, people in Boulder prefer single family housing. Some people just can't stand that folks in Boulder are pretty happy with it. In his seal to correct them, Stan O'Klob Deezza, that's O-K-L-O-K-L-O-E-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z- B-D-Z-I-J-A, in a recent guest opinion, resorts, in my opinion, to just making stuff up. If he really thinks that Boulder became a pioneer in urban development with the blue line and a vigorous open space program on the basis of race, then his ignorance of Boulder history is profound indeed. The the reason it's difficult to build new housing is not because it's majority white, it's because people here, starting over 60 years ago, did not want a lot of new housing, even if, as was the expectation, the houses would be filled with white people. Oak Club also claims without evidence, that Boulder homeowners are resistant to new housing because it will dilute the value of their assets. Nonsense. Single-family homes rise in value in denser neighborhoods because of scarcity. People, especially those with children, prefer single-family housing. Oak Disha thinks that if we don't build dense multifamily housing, our streets will be choked with cars. This from someone who lives in California, as if his suggestion wouldn't make things worse. He predicts that we will be a declining community, doesn't sound so bad really, of extravagantly wealthy seniors. Ageism aside, none of those seniors is going to last forever, especially the ones backcountry skiing and ice climbing. And what extravagance? high-end Subarus, anyone who thinks that more housing will solve the problem that 56% of Boulder's 104,000 workers live outside the city limits needs to have a better grasp of the issues of balancing jobs with housing. That and better transit would alleviate the problems he imagines without destroying Boulder's quality of life. California? No thanks. Our next letter to the editor comes from Casey Cook, also of Boulder. Boulder shouldn't just blindly trust developers. So now our community loses out on 100 affordable housing units because the city of Boulder took some developers' word they would build them in exchange for permits to build the ultra-rich 311 Mapleton project? Question mark. The city was warned the deal had no teeth in it, but believed the old trust-us routine. Hey, city of Boulder, I've got some oceanfront property. You know where that I'd love to sell you? All right. We have a guest opinion article, and this is written by Rebecca Dixon, who teaches for the Program for Writing and Rhetoric at CU Boulder. And it's entitled Regenerating Our Soil is a Real Tool in Fight Against Climate Change. The more I learn about regenerative agriculture, the more confident I feel that humanity can avert the worst of the climate crisis that is unfolding. Yes, we need to reduce our use of fossil fuels massively and immediately, and we need to rethink the way we build our communities. But our soil, whether in our backyards or on farms or on our open spaces, has a broad capacity to absorb carbon from our atmosphere. As we shift to green energy and electrified transport and homes, we can also shift to healthier ways of treating our soils, thus making them more productive and carbon-holding. Understanding the importance of soil is key to understanding how best to address climate change and ecosystem health. What has happened, what has happened to our soils? Worldwide, much of our land has been degraded. Deforestation, overgrazing, industrial agriculture, fossil fuel extraction, habitat loss to urban and suburban construction, this is just a partial list of the factors that have damaged our soils, and this has been a huge loss. Soil appears to just be sitting there lifeless, but healthy soils are active communities of worms, other tiny creatures, bacteria, fungi, and more. As plants and organisms die, healthy soil takes in their carbon. Industrial agriculture has reduced the carbon holding capacity of our soils all over the world, including here in Boulder County. But we can regenerate them, and farmers are doing this right here along the Front Range. Their stories of transformation are inspiring and instructive. So what does regenerative farming involve? Many things and different farmers define regeneration in different ways. But here's an introductory definition based on conversations with several of Boulders regenerative farmers and after attending a number of events and webinars. Regenerative Farmers think of soil as a partner, a living thing that needs attention and respect. So they don't throw toxic chemicals on it. They don't beat it down with overgrazing. They embrace farming practices that rebuild the good stuff in the soil, its organic matter, its community of microorganisms, and tiny critters. They work to bring back biodiversity in the soil among the plants, among the pollinators. As they do this, the plants and soils can absorb more carbon and can take in more take in water more easily. Any piece of land that can help us reverse climate change by taking in carbon dioxide. If any one of us plants trees, shrubs, and other perennials we are helping to pull carbon from the air. Want to learn more? CU Boulder's program for writing and rhetoric is hosting a panel on regenerative agriculture, where experts on the topic will share what they are doing here in Boulder County to rejuvenate our soils and improve our ecosystems. Our panelists, Nick Domenico regenerative farmer and co-founder of Drylands Agroecology Research. Brent Kencairn, Senior Policy Advisor for Climate and Resilience with the City of Boulder. Jennifer Riley Chetwind, Director of Marketing and Social Responsibility of the Denver Botanic Gardens. Ashley Stolzman, Boulder County Commissioner, and Damian Thompson, PhD, regenerative farmer and director of the Center for Healthy Communities. The event is free and open to the public in person, no registration required, and will be taking place today, Wednesday, March 8th, from 1.30 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. on CU campus at Kittredge Central Hall That's 2480 Kittredge Loop Drive, room N114, the building south of the Fisk Planetarium. Guest parking is available, or better yet, walk, bike, or bus. Want to do something more direct to help regenerate our soils? Trees are our most trustworthy partners in carbon sequestration. So this spring, the city of Boulder, the county and regenerative farmers are planting a lot of trees. Dryland's agroecology research will plant thousands of them. Check out their plantings at https://www.dar.eco/upcoming-events. Slash, 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 That's D-A-R dot E-C-O slash coming dash events, upcoming dash events. And don't be afraid of breaking your back. The trees are saplings. They don't require digging for hours to get one large root ball into the ground. Here in Boulder County, check out Yellow Barn Farm, Olin Farms, and others that are working to replenish topsoil while growing healthful food. Boulder.Earth's climate action portal has more information and links on healthy agriculture in our community. Climate change has already happened, is happening, and like many others in our community, I feel this deeply, but the doomsday scenarios we all dread are not inevitable. Regenerative approaches to our soils are a way we can help heal the damage that's been done. Let's learn more about how to replenish our earth. Again, that's by Rebecca Dixon, and she teaches for the Program for Writing and Rhetoric at CU. And in a non-local article, but might be interesting, it's from Hershey Chocolates. And it says Reese's Cups and some chocolate to be made from plants. this is by Deanne Durbin of the Associated Press. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are getting the vegan treatment. The Hershey company said Tuesday that Reese's Plant-Based Peanut Butter Cups, which go on sale this month, will be its first vegan chocolate sold nationally. A second plant-based offering, Hershey's plant-based extra creamy with almonds and sea salt will follow in April. The chocolates are made with oats instead of milk, Hershey said. Hershey has experimented with vegan chocolate before. It sold an oat-based chocolate bar called Oat Made in some test markets starting in 2021. But the new products will be the first sold through the US under the plant-based label. Hershey said consumers want choice and are looking for products they consider healthier or with fewer ingredients, including reduced sugar and plant-based options. Hershey also introduced an organic version of Reese's Cups in February of 2021. Younger consumers, in particular, are looking to reduce consumption of animal-based products, said Euromonitor, a market research firm. In a 2021 survey, Euromonitor found that 54% of Generation Z consumers were restricting animal-based products from their diets compared to 34% of baby boomers. Nestle has sold its KitKat V, a vegan KitKat bar, in Europe since 2021, while Cadbury sells a vegan chocolate bar in the United Kingdom. But so far, U.S. vegan chocolate options have generally been limited to premium brands like Lind or organic chocolatiers like Who... HU Kitchen. Hershey said it developed plant-based versions of Reese's Cups and Hershey Bars, some of its most popular products because there's a dearth of mainstream plant-based chocolates in the U.S. market. The plant-based versions will cost more. Hershey wouldn't share the details because it said retailers set final prices. But right aid list is 1.4 ounce package of two plant-based Reese's Cups at $2.49. That's about $1 more than consumers would pay for a regular package. Hershey charges a similar premium for organic versions of its Reese's Cups, which went on sale in 2021. And ditching the dairy won't cut calories, while Hershey didn't release all of its nutritional facts. The 1.4-ounce package of plant-based Reese's Cups have 210 calories, the same number of calories as a 1.5-ounce package of traditional Reese's Cups. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Daily Camera and the Longmont Times Call. My name is Kevin Martindale. AINC programming is brought to you in part by funds from the Virginia W. Hill Foundation. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303 786 7777.